nearly half of all American adults, 48% have diagnosed heart disease. Almost 700,000 Americans will die every year from it. That's one person every 36 seconds. Yet what if I told you that we were addressing the wrong disease? What if I told you that we'd been brainwashed into thinking that cholesterol is the key to protecting yourself from heart attack? It's not. It's a myth. And in fact, there's something far more pervasive, far more dangerous, and far more controllable. That something is insulin resistance. Listen and learn. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review us when you're done so that we can help even more people and hopefully save some lives. All right, friends. Hi there. I got to bounce back and forth between my Zoom and my Facebook, and I brought a friend today. You know, I, I have my dog, but it's rainy out, so I brought my dog with me today to introduce to everybody. This is Meeker. You'll see him sometimes. We post videos of him on Bottom Line Inc.'s Instagram page and Facebook page. And I just thought it'd be fun. He's so funny and he's so calming. We're going to be talking about heart disease today and the great cholesterol myth, because we all think cholesterol is what it's all about. But I just thought I'd let you say hi to Meeker. He's on my lap today. It's rainy and he's miserable because he doesn't get to go outside. So he's just laying here today being with me. Anyway, hi there. Happy Thursday. Um, I'm Sarah Heiner with Bottom Line. And we're here, we're going to talk about cholesterol. I'm going to introduce Johnny Bowden in just a minute. Let me just remind you of a few things. Um, we have a growing library of these videos. They are in the Bottom Line Facebook page, Bottom Line Inc. Facebook page, or on our YouTube page, Bottom Line Inc.'s YouTube page. Growing library of those. Plus on YouTube, I've got hundreds of other videos that I've done over time. So go there, share them, subscribe to them so you can see when we put more things up. Um, we have got also, you'll see links in the chat box below. We've got a couple great downloads, one for boosting immune system. You know, we're all scared to death as COVID is coming back again. Differently, it's not as deadly, it doesn't seem to be the same as deadly. We've got our hands around it, we've got treatments, but it's coming back. So you wanna have a strong immune system as you can. So we've got a great download, um, free content about boosting your immune system. We also have a bunch of videos we've done about COVID, what you can do to protect yourself from it. Um, you and your family, super easy. And uh, frankly, the doctors aren't talking about it. Supplements you can take, things you can do to boost your immune system. They're talking about masks, wear your masks, wash your hands, stay socially distanced. But there are things you can do to also strengthen your immune system and reduce your odds of getting sick. And if you do get sick, to reduce the, the odds that you will get badly sick. So that's super important. Um, come back again. Generally, we're doing these Facebook Lives on Thursday afternoon. So mark your calendar so that you can come on back. And if you have any questions at all, uh, put them on in the chat box, okay? So again, we're gonna be talking about heart disease today. We're gonna talking about if anybody's on statins and, and has questions about those. We're not really focusing on statins, frankly. We're gonna talk a little bit about kind of that everybody's being put on statins, but that's not necessarily the key to beating heart disease. Um, so I think that's it. If you see me look down, it's because someone's gonna pass along your comments to me um, so that I can pass them along to Dr. Johnny Bowden. All right, let me introduce Johnny. If I can just change the view, push my little buttons. Hello, my friend. Hello, my friend. It's always good to see you. Always good um, to see you. I was just it's telling Johnny, we did, um, we have another video we did with Johnny a while back about healthy foods and being able to eat healthfully on a budget. And it was a great video. We just reposted it and it did great, a lot of interest. So you might want, if you love listening to Johnny now, you might want to look back and see that video too. Um, all right, let me tell you who we're talking to. 
So Johnny is a nationally known expert on weight loss and nutrition. He's the author of, or co-author of 12 books, including 15. the 100, the, huh? 13, yes. 15? 15. Wow, you got bigger. I had 12 <laughs> three months ago. God, all right, 15 books, um, including the 150 healthiest foods on earth, and the one we're really going to talk about today, which is Over His Shoulder, The Great Cholesterol Myth, which was first published in 2013, yes? Yes. And now, and now because of new findings, actually, they just updated it, he and Dr. Stephen Sinatra, um, and just updated it. And that's what we're going to talk about, is what the new findings are and what you need to know about cholesterol and heart disease. Um, you have probably seen him or his articles in basically every major magazine or on major television networks, but his favorite is in Bottom Line Personal because he's with the us. The most favorite of all, of favorite all, all. experience in the world. So true. Um, and you can learn all about him and see more of his work at johnnybowden.com, and that link will be somewhere around as well. So hello, my friend. Welcome. Hello, my friend. Officially. Welcome. Thank you. Um, all right. High level. Heart disease is still the number one killer by far in this country. Of men and women, by the way. Women, are, are, it's very interesting. Study after study shows that if you ask a random sample, most women are most frightened of breast cancer. Right. But in fact, they have a far greater chance of actually dying from heart disease. So it's, it's actually true for both sexes. Yeah, and far, like far and away. It's like 700,000 deaths a year from heart disease, right. 600,000 of cancer, and then it drops down, COVID aside drops down to like 200,000. Like this is this is a major epidemic and it's really crazy where we are all so afraid and frightened about COVID and yet heart disease, there's so many things that we can and should be doing about it. And insulin resistance, which we're gonna talk about today, we are in 100% control of that for our bodies. Now heart disease though, so here's the important thing that I want people to realize. Heart disease doesn't happen when you show up in the emergency room. It starts way back in what, your 20s or 30s? It can start, you can see signs of it, you know, in your teens. It depends on where you're looking and, and what the trajectory is going to be. But uh, I mean, one of the biggest findings of the book, which we're going to get to, is that there are signs that show up a decade before your doctor says, oh, Mrs. Jones, your cholesterol is too high. Way before that, we can see the signs. And I, I wanted to just go back, if I may, and, and add an asterisk to something you just said earlier about everybody's talking about COVID. And people might be listening to this thinking, well, what is heart disease is important. And it's, yes, more people die of it than anything else. But I'm really concerned right now with just not getting COVID. And I want to tell people who might be thinking that, stick with us because these two things are very related. What Sarah and I are gonna talk about, about how to prevent heart disease actually winds up also being the way to support your immune system and strengthen yourself so that a bad COVID outcome is much less likely should you contract. So true, such very, a great very point, such yeah. a great point, yes. Now let's talk about though for a second, also high risk, you said it does start out even young. What's really frightening here is that the, great, the rate of obesity in children is going up and they rate, and we have young kids who have signs of heart disease. Well, and they're that, all connected. They're all connected. I mean, yeah. when, when we talk about in the book, and we're not the only ones, I mean, the, the, the class of diseases known as cardiometabolic diseases, we are talking about prediabetes, diabetes, and we believe, and that's something we'll talk about today also, that diabetes is pre-heart disease, 80% of diabetics die of heart disease, do the math. Yeah. So it really is on that way. And then heart disease, obesity is right there. And even Alzheimer's is now being called type three diabetes, meaning it has a very similar 
predecessor. It, it kind of is on the same spectrum. So all of these cardiometabolic diseases, you mentioned obesity, they are very, very related. And let me just point out one more time, they are the exact list of conditions that are considered underlying preconditions that make COVID outcomes really bad. So yes. one right. we should be looking at all of us today. Exactly. It is totally related. I'll just clarify though, that it's type two diabetes, type oh, one diabetes. Absolutely. We're not talking about type one today. We're talking no, about type two diabetes. About type ones and autoimmune It's a whole different ball game. Yes. A little bit of overlap. That's not what we're talking about. No, this one is what I will crassly call for the most part, self-induced diabetes. It's crass, it's coarse, but my, the point in being that crass about it is that so much of that is because of the choices we've made in our lifestyle some of the choices that we're making and we're going to talk about insulin resistance and we're going to talk about diet and exercise and all that sort of stuff, which means that we can turn it and that you can turn the dial down on that as well. You can overcome it, which means, yes, we've self-induced it in Sarah's mean, crass way. In, in Sarah's mean, I'm, the, I'm the good cop. She's the bad cop. We've done this before. And we, I'm just uh, making the big statement so that people wake okay. up. It's important. I will, give you, I will give you that. Most okay. of this is lifestyle induced. What I, what I want to point out to the people who might feel victimized by that is okay. um, there was an entire book written about this called Nudge. Government, big food, medical industry, all of it have ways of making certain choices much easier to make. Mm -hmm. So when we make those crappy choices and we grab the convenience food and we overeat the M&Ms and all of that, it's not just a failure of willpower. These things have been engineered to be very convenient, very yeah. ubiquitous and very addictive. So it's not entirely, you know, I mean, yes, it is our choices. But those choices have been made very, very difficult for us. And we need to know that going in that we are literally fighting a war against a lot of forces that want to make us make these maybe more convenient for big food and more economical for the big food. But they're really not the right choices for our metabolism. That is true. Marketing, marketers are very smart. right? Very smart. And 60 years ago, they told pregnant women to smoke because it'll help them relax. So there's all sorts of you know things that have been done from marketing point of view. There's no question about it. I will say though that it's our hand on the donut. And again, it's our hand on the donut. what we're teaching, our, and also what we're teaching our children. <sighs> so back to the childhood obesity, so that we're teaching them the patterns of good healthy eating, and we're teaching them. I I don't know if I've ever told this story. So my older daughter never saw candy, never saw sweets until she was like three or four years old because she was at home, she wasn't in school, she wasn't really, she interacted, she went to Gymboree, she went, but, but she wasn't in other people's homes and lives. So I would say she never saw candy and it wasn't like we, it was taboo, but we didn't have it in the house as a regular kind of food. She has a very low sweet tooth. My younger daughter, now she comes into the world, now sweets have come into the world because the older one is bigger. So she's now kind of become aware of it. My younger one had a far, far more of a sweet tooth because she grew up in that world. So what we expose them to, what they think is normal, if you, if you're, you know, you mandatory dessert, like every night has to have a dessert with it, it's what you're teaching them in their habits. So we have a great opportunity to help yeah. teach them early, right? I, I couldn't I'll get off my soapbox well, and let you be I, the expert now. My, my early years as a nutritionist, I got lots of questions from parents yeah. about. I mean, I still do about, about this and, and what do you do? And, right. and it always breaks my heart because the answer is you do what you did and you needed right. to do it years ago. The Jesuits had an expression, give us a child until he is six and he is ours forever. Mm -hmm. If you can shape their taste buds in those early years, 
case closed, you're okay. I, I have met a few families who've done that. They, the suites weren't even in the house. And by the time they were two or three years old, yeah, they knew they were out there. They would go to their friends' birthday parties, but they had not been put, I don't know whether the programming starts that early or what it is, but for some reason, suites were just not a part of their repertoire. They didn't long for them and crave them. And when they right. had them, the parents were able to say, look, those are not treats, they're junk. You can have a little junk once in a while, but then we're gonna go back to real food. And that whole way of conceptualizing it, those kids, they're just they're, they're right. a different just, breed of animal. Right. And teaching them healthy habits. I don't want it to sound like I'm like a psycho woman and there was never candy in my house and never sweets. I, you know, we had plenty of sweets. I always joke that ice cream is medicine, you know, so it exists, but to teach them it's that. Habits, right. Exactly. If you're going to eat it, eat the good stuff. Um, but to teach them per, the perspective on it so that it, as it like, it, that it is, it's a treat. It's not, it's not another, um, you know, course of your meal necessarily or mandatory. All right. Let's talk about though. Okay, so we've talked about that. We've talked about um, cholesterol. Everybody has been trained that cholesterol is it, and that it, everybody runs around knowing their cholesterol. It's like you go to dinner, right? You know what's your stats? What you know what you have for dinner the other night, and what's your cholesterol number? We all trade it like we trade, you know, stats about baseball players. Um, yeah. Go, because it's as you the title of your book, the Great Cholesterol Myth. Well, I'll give you the three talking points that I've been going around the country with the 15, what we used to call the 15 second ele elevator speech. Yep. You're in an elevator, somebody says, what's your book about? Here's what it is. Three points. And we can certainly flesh this out. And there's a lot of sidebars we can go down. But here's the three take home points. Cholesterol does not cause heart disease and neither does saturated fat. Tons of studies. We can talk about it all day long, all documented. It doesn't. We were wrong about that. Number two, and it's very related, cholesterol is involved in heart disease, but not the way we're measuring it. So the test that you, listener, have been using for the last, you and our families and me have been using for the last, I don't know, since 1986, when it sort of became the standard way to, to talk about food and cholesterol and fat, we have been using a test that was invented in 1963 and is about as relevant as a Commodore 64 computer in today's age. So we now have tests that look at all 13 kinds of cholesterol. They look at the patterns of particles. They look at the size of the particles. These are things that really actually matter and do predict. And we are continuing to use this antiquated thing that basically says you're in two categories of cholesterol, good and bad, which is like telling people you're in two categories of health. You're short or you're tall. It's just a useless a metric that we need to retire and no one listening to this, I beg of you, should ever take a prescription at face value that is based on that test. You need to go, we as consumers need to go to our doctors and insist that they use the more modern tests. They are available. LabCorp makes them, Quest makes them, they're not expensive. And those doctors can order that test and don't ever take a prescription based on that. If they want to give you a statin, say, that's fine please order me the particle test. So that's point number two. And point number three, so number one was that cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease in the first place. And Can I clarify just, that one though? Let me just understand, ask, break it down before we move on to two and three a little bit. Yeah. It doesn't cause heart disease. Correct. But it, is it associated with it? Is there a correlation? I'll call it high cholesterol. There is a correlate. There is a connection to cholesterol and plaque and all of the rest of the stuff, but not in the way we think. Not in the sense that LDL causes bad things and HDL is the good stuff. It's the same cholesterol. And high so, does not suddenly mean high 
LDL does not suddenly mean dead because you gave me a stat that said almost half the people that went into the hospital with cardiovascular cardiovascular disease had no had perfectly normal cholesterol readings. That's correct. So exactly. it's not. That's right. Right. And that's one of our points. It does LDL doesn't predict anything. It mm -hmm. just doesn't. I, I used the study that you just mentioned showed that I think it was 375,000 admissions for cardiovascular disease to American hospitals. 50% of them had normal cholesterol. Right. It's actually higher than that. It was pointed out to me by a number of people that actually the study shows 60 to 70%. So it's, it's somewhere between 50 and 70% have absolutely normal cholesterol. And we give studies, uh, examples of that in the book. It just is not a good predictor. Now, when you know that there's 13 different subdivisions of cholesterol and you go, well, if you start looking at those, some of that does give you good I'll give you an example. And so what are, what are some of those subdivisions? I'll give you a perfect example. Okay. LDL itself comes in different sizes. Some of them are small and dark and atherogenic. They're called atherogenic particles. They're just little, tiny little BB pellets worth of inflammation and oxidative damage, and they get caught in the endothelium, and then all kinds of bad stuff starts to happen. Some of them are like that. The others are big and fluffy like a cotton ball and they don't do very much damage. And if you just look at LDL, you don't know how much of it is cotton balls and how much of it is BB gun pellets. And that's what's important. Okay. So having a high LDL is, excuse, excuse the language, BS, but if you look under the hood and you go, oh, my LDL is high, but 95% of it is the cotton ball, I ain't got nothing to worry about. If 95, if my LDL is just where my doctor wants it to be, right. but if I look under the hood, I find out 99% of it is the really bad stuff, then I'm being undertreated because nobody's looking at that. They're looking at this large category. So here's a question on that. Am I genetically predispositioned to be a small LDL person or a fluffy LDL person? Or does that also react to my lifestyle choices, what I eat, how I eat, my sleep, my exercise, all those sorts of things. Well, I, I, that's a complex question. There are genetic markers for different things. It's not like you have a gene that says you're gonna have LDL, but I'll give you one example that, that may help clarify that a little bit. Recently, research has started to look not just at the LDL in your bloodstream, but the LDL receptors. Some people don't have a lot of receptors. So they got the same, and no matter what they eat, the LDL is just going to keep floating around in their bloodstream. Because it's not getting absorbed into the body. Because it's not getting absorbed into the cells. Right. And it's a receptor problem, not an LDL problem. Mm. Other people may have very good receptor sites, and they just snatch all that LDL right out of the bloodstream. So now they're looking at other medications, things that can improve receptors, and it's all complicated stuff. But the point is, this is no longer just about LDL and HDL. There is an entire literature in the scientific literature now questioning whether HDL is as good as we thought it was. Okay. We have had drug studies right. that show that you can raise your HDL really high. And guess what? Nothing happens. Nobody dies less. Nobody has less heart disease. HDL goes up. So they are rethinking these two gross categories to say, look, what's what really causes heart disease? It ain't LDL and HDL. It's a whole series of processes that take place in the endothelium that have to do with inflammation and oxidative damage and, and plaque becoming unstable and all of those things. And it's influenced by stress. It's influenced by hormones. And all of these things 
are like a technicolor picture of heart disease that is, and, and LDL and HDL are like the old black and white tintypes. They're just not telling us what we need to know to really prevent heart disease. When I went on Dr. Oz, one of the things I said that is, is that trying to prevent or reduce the risk of heart disease by lowering cholesterol is like trying to prevent or reduce the risk of obesity by taking the lettuce off your Whopper. It's just the wrong target. It's you know, cheap. it has some calories, but you really want to hang your, hang your hat on that, on the lettuce. And that's what we're doing with HDL and LDL. And it's just because doctors are lazy and they don't want to read this new literature and they don't want to make a shift to the newer tests. And that's what our message is. You gotta change to the test that matters. Stop prescribing based on HDL and LDL. And the punchline is we have markers that show off for heart disease, like you alluded to earlier, a decade before anybody even sees a high cholesterol test. That's what we need to be looking at, the stuff that shows up early. So, and here's the segue into insulin resistance, which you say is really, really the, the new learning of it. I, I, so, believe we talk, I passionately believe that. Well, and it's interesting. This is a perfect example of what I call reductionist medicine, where the you know mainstream medicine so often takes a body part, a thing, right? So immunity, whatever it is, like it's it's just this isolated thing, and that if you cut out that part, if you dial up that part, if you just give yourself get some more serotonin in you, then you won't be depressed anymore. Whatever they look at these isolated pieces, whereas insulin resistance, what we're going to now talk about is it's your system. It's a broader cascade of your body's optimal functioning. Very and well your said. body knows how to, to regulate. If we, if we give our body the tools and the resources to do what it's supposed to do, it knows how to regulate itself because unto itself, we need cholesterol. We even need the LDLs. It's not bad unto itself. It's no. when it gets out of balance that chaos occurs. And by the way, I, I, as a quick anecdote, Dr. Daniel Amen, maybe some of, of your listeners know who he is. He's a world-renowned psychiatrist. He's had nine PBS specials and 10 New York Times bestsellers. So yeah, I mean, he's been in bottom line. Huh? He's been in bottom line as well. Yeah, yeah. great guy. Yeah. So I, I was on his podcast with he and his wife, Tana, and he actually told me a story about a, a patient that they have at the Amen clinics whose cholesterol is so low that they are they seriously have to bring it up because that's a very yeah. dangerous condition. And this is this should go to one of the questions and I'm sure will come up about eating cholesterol. They can't get it up. No amount of egg yolks, no amount of like cholesterol laden food is making a difference. They are winding up giving intravenous pharmaceutical grade insulin via injection in order to get it up to a level where it's healthy because you do not. And this is something else that people don't know. We keep thinking the lower the LDL, the better. What happens no. is it Bay curve. Now you start to see increases in accidents, suicide, neurological problems, anxiety, depression. It has yes. grand emotional aspects. Yes. Yeah. It's not yeah. something you want to lower, folks. Yeah. To you know, if you are trying to lower it, at least know what's under the hood. So you're trying to lower the bad guys in there. And the bad guys are not synonymous with LDL, and the good guys are not synonymous with HDL. Okay. All right. So the new silver bullet. It's not really a silver bullet because it's it's this broad spectrum of things. Talk about insulin resistance. Yeah, it's it, it's a hard sell to people because they they barely many people have heard of insulin. If they have a diabetic in their family, they know it's 
It's something that you need if you're diabetic um, or they have some other idea about it. So it, it, if you tell people insulin resistance, it's not as easy to understand as like, what's your cholesterol measurement? But well, I, it's kind of an oxymoron. It's like, wait, is it resistance? Is that good? Is it bad? What does it mean? Because insulin exactly. is supposed to be a it good thing. So it's very confusing. It is an error in carbohydrate metabolism. And that shows up and can be measured a decade early. And, and I'll give you the fast way of how it works. So insulin is a very important hormone without which you can't live. In fact, diabetics type one don't make any insulin and that's why they're type one diabetics and they have to be on insulin for the rest of their lives. Yeah. But type two diabetics, the life, what you're calling the lifestyle diabetics, mm -hmm. it's a very different situation. So let's look, maybe we spend a minute talking about how metabolism is supposed to work in an ideal world so we can see what goes wrong. I was just going to say, let's define that because even cholesterol, uh, uh, carbohydrate metabolism is a big work. So right, I, need, right. just, I need a very simple picture of you eat, insulin does this, it does that with the sugar. I'm going to explain it exactly. And, and it's a really good place to start. It's just like if a car is broken, you want to know what is the car supposed to do? What is a car that comes right off the assembly line and is in perfect working order? How does that operate? Then we can see what is not working and what broke down in the car that you're driving. So let's take a young kid, comes home from school, eats an apple, and he goes out to play. And let's, let's put him in a different decade when everything wasn't managed, play dates and, and, and computer games. Let's say the kid eats an apple and he goes out into his old fashioned neighborhood and he plays on the jungle gym and he rides a bike and he plays in the sandbox and he, whatever he does that kids do. So when he eats the apple, his blood sugar rises a little as it does when you eat any food in the world. There's an exception, and I'll talk about that later, but generally speaking, almost any food, any combination of foods, any meal you eat will raise blood sugar. And how much is of course the question, but it, let's say the apple raised it a little bit. So the pancreas wakes up and says, oh, dude just ate a little something, sugar's going up. Hey, insulin, get out there and round it up, take it over to the muscle cells. They're gonna need it for the energy the kid's gonna need to play in the park, great squirts out a little bit of insulin. Insulin's like the adult coming into the playground, rounding up the kids, it's a sherpa for the sugar. Because right. high blood sugar, this is a given, is not a good thing. You do not want your sugar high, you don't want your insulin high. So when it goes up, insulin comes along to escort it where it's needed. Where is it needed? In an ideal metabolism? In the muscle cells. Because what are you gonna do all day? You're gonna move, you're going to play like the kid. So the muscle cells need this sugar, insulin delivers it, now your blood sugar drops a little bit, you're hungry again, and you eat, and all is well with the world, and that is a healthy metabolism. Now let's fast forward 30, 35 years. You wake up, you're filled with stress, you had a restless night, you didn't sleep well, your cortisol levels are high, you're under stress, you barely get out of the house, you stop at Starbucks, you buy an 1100 calorie low fat blueberry muffin filled with sugar and a triple sweetened latte, your blood sugar is now on the sky. The pancreas is screaming, code blue, code blue. This guy just ate the equivalent of 20 ding-dongs. And insulin starts carousing through the bloodstream, trying to round up the sugar. Now, obviously, this didn't happen one day. We're talking about continuously happening. And this happens continuously. And insulin is even sweating and wiping, wiping the sweat. Even if you're not stressed. It's like, even if you woke up relaxed and you're eating that. Even if you woke up relaxed, but, but the stress... Yes, right. but this adds another dynamic to totally it. Totally agree, but I want people to understand that it's it like because they're going, oh well, I'm not stressed. I can handle a donut any time. No, 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 no. no. 
No, stress is an added promoter right. of all this yeah, terrible yeah. stuff that's right. going to happen, but it's a very usual accompaniment to this. Yeah. So, all right, so you wake up relaxed and you run and you get the muffin right. and, the, and the thing yeah. and your blood sugar is on the roof and the pancreas is sending out insulin. But here's what's happening. The cells, which were so happy to get that sugar when you were an eight-year-old kid playing in the park, the cells are going, dude, what are we going to do with the sugar? You keep bringing us all this sugar. This guy is going to sit at the computer all day at office, and then he's going to come home and play with the clicker on his couch. We don't need any more sugar. Go somewhere else. The cells are now beginning to resist the effects of insulin. They are becoming resistant. They are saying no mas. Now, when the muscle cells say no mas, insulin says, well, got to get the sugar out of here. I know the fat cells will take it. And they do. They are happy to take it. And now you start to get a spreading waistline. And butt and thighs start to like suddenly start to be expanding because the fat cells are happy to take that. After a while, even the fat cells say, sorry, dude, there is I no more. Now you've got elevated blood sugar and elevated insulin. That is the definition of prediabetes. And you are on the road from prediabetes. It's only going to get worse. It, can, it turns into diabetes. And if it continues, it turns into heart disease. And that's why we say, if you can look at this early enough to catch that insulin resistance, the studies show you could wipe out 42% of heart, heart attacks. So now how do you know that you have insulin resistance? People don't uh, know it. They're used, they're used to living that way. They're used to having, and again, you, you painted a very extreme example, but there are a whole bunch of people who just say, I just have a piece of toast and jelly for breakfast. Right, so well, it doesn't have to be the 1100 calorie muffin. If no. you have a piece of toast and jelly for breakfast and then you have a glass of juice and then you have, like if, you, if you're not balancing your, your blood sugar properly and we can, we'll talk about that in a bit in terms of what do you do. Yeah. Um, normal people who are well-intended and think they're eating healthfully and my lights just went out, um, who think they're eating healthfully um, are putting themselves in the same kind of danger and they're not understanding it. And in fact, Johnny, did a lot of this happen when we were in the no fat world? But what happened when, when that like no fat- You wrecked, you wrecked your punchline? That you took the punchline. Yes, you stole the punchline. I'm sorry. It all started when we got this cockamamie crazy notion that eliminating fat was gonna make us healthy. And we talk about this in the book, we go through the whole history of it and how we got on this crazy pathway to begin with. But we also say it doesn't much matter that much how we got there. We can relitigate the seven country study and Ansel Keys and all of the backbiting that went on for them get this consensus that we should all be on low fat diets. We can talk about that forever, but the point is we're stuck with it now, we've got it. And now we got to figure out what to do about it. Well, the only reason I really bring it up though also is that there are a whole bunch of people who have been trained to have um, that, that was good. So yeah. that like, you know, again, back to where we were training our kids and training young people about how they should eat. So there were a whole bunch of people in our generation that went through this, um, you know, fat is bad. So it's like, you have to unlearn that. You have to suddenly, like, it's almost like, a, thank you for bringing my light back on. Um, so it's, um, there are a whole bunch of people that like that fat is bad. So we need to untrain them from that because yes. they're, you know, they're twitching. You're going to say something later on that says grass fed beef is good. And they're going to go, are you crazy? Yeah. Well, this is a massive re-education effort that we're, we're talking about here. 
And um, it's funny that you mentioned that about what we were all taught. In the 1940s, there were commercials with doctors smoking camels saying, nine out of 10 doctors who were surveyed smoke camels and they smoked it in their office. There have been periods of mass delusion before this yeah. where we were just wrong about something and it was true about cigarettes. And I'm sorry to say it's true about the low fat diet and we're gonna have a hell of a time. It, it took a long time for people in the 1940s who had been brought up on commercials saying doctors smoke camels to realize that, wait a minute, right. these cigarettes give us lung disease. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time because people had been, when you grow up thinking that all your life, you know, it's a very hard change. But the fact is, this is a woke moment in medicine. It's a woke moment. In, in the world, and, and you and I might disagree a little bit on this, but I mean, we are reevaluating the role of women, the role of people of color, what, what our preconceived notions about so many people or things have been, and we're kind of trying to reevaluate them in the light of, of some kind of enlightenment. We need to do the same thing in medicine. We need to stop blaming cholesterol for heart disease. We need to start looking for the things that really cause it, and we need to get off this low-fat diet and restore fat and natural whole foods to their rightful place in the development of health and immunity. Yeah, agreed. Although you and I would not argue about those social issues. So <laughs> just saying, you pay me out to be this evil person. No, I'm not. No, Even I, though I said this was a lifestyle. I, that jokingly, Sarah, now because I, we're, I don't want all of them out there to think that I'm evil. I'm not. Um, not evil, folks. I can attest to that. I'm not. I'm a very a little misguided on some political things, but she's not evil. <laughs> but we can get along. See, this is an important, an important life lesson, Johnny. And I have different views on life on some fun things, but we respect and we listen to each other, and that's a lesson in life for everybody to hear. Sorry for the political commentary on the moment. Well, you know what? Wait, it's very. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> Let me say one thing about that. Because Getting back to insulin resistance and heart disease. We're going to, but give me one second. We are so politicized in nutrition at this point that it mirrors what's going on in politics. The vegans hate the carnivores. I mean, you want to talk about Democrats and Republicans. I mean, there's not even a dialogue about different health properties of certain diets and why this might be better for certain people. It's if you're not a vegan, you know, the vegans, and I'm not picking on them, the same thing on the other side with paleo and keto and people have gotten into these camps. And I, one of the, the biggest things I get asked all the time is like, who do you listen to? Who should we believe? Because this is so acrimonious. And I have an answer for that, that I hope that we're going to get to. Okay. Well, but even, I mean, with COVID as well, I keep, we've done a bunch of interviews Perfect. about this where wash your hands, wear your mask, stay away from each other. Fine. The doctors are not talking about the studies that are out there that you can reduce your risk of getting sick if you supplement zinc deficiencies, vitamin D deficiencies have both been tested and seen totally safe. And if you if you're not deficient, you'll reduce your risk of getting sick. You're gonna you're gonna take me on a tangent, and my head's gonna explode. Why they are not saying wash, distance, mask, and vitamin D, I do not know. I know. Let me just give you a fast study. And, and saying 98 to 100% of people who die of COVID have vitamin D deficiencies. And that is coming out in study after study. Can anyone connect the dots and say this inexpensive, safe little pill right. that costs Will you just add that to the mask? For God's right. sake. Right. I know. Oh, man. Anybody that's listening here, we're just gone off topic. But oh, yes, absolutely. How many lives would have been saved if they have people just fixing their deficiencies? And it won't, it's not a 100% guarantee, but even if you get it, you will get it far, you know, 
far far more reduced, far far lighter version. Your risk of mortality, risk of death, far reduced. And Sarah, that's really all I'm saying in the book, The Great Cholesterol Myth, and in, in life, is that we really, th there's a lot of unknown challenges out there. There are, if, you, if we fix COVID, there's going to be a COVID-2 next year or the two years from now. All we can really do is strengthen our own system and our own immunity, which is part of strengthening that system, with the right nutrition, which is not a low-fat diet. And that's all we really can do. We can build our house stronger. We can't control the hurricane that's coming down the pike, but we can do everything we can to be right. sure that we are one of the houses that's left standing after the hurricane comes. And that's what we really are talking about exactly. here. That, yes. Right. And with regards, so now let's go back to heart disease, exact same thing. If you build exactly. the house stronger, you reduce your risk. So. We digressed, I don't know, probably 10 minutes ago about how can you tell that you have insulin resistance? Okay, so resistance, there are actually four ways and I'll start with the Rolls Royce, well, the, the Tesla and they told me- Well, what should we do? Like, so nobody knows what a Rolls Royce is anymore. Right. How, huh? So yeah, so what should people be doing? Do they ask, do they go to the doctor and say, how do I have insulin resistance? Are there tests the doctor should be giving them? Like, how do they, how do they know? Because again, they go, they get their blood test, they find out if their kidneys are working and they find out if they have cholesterol. Okay, and so let me give you, right. there are four, I'll give you two of them, four, four of them, and they're, they're all laid out in the book. There are ways to do it. And one of the things you have to realize is that most doctors who are on in HMOs or on insurance plans are not going to do it. They're just not going to do the test. But I want you guys to know that there is a test and it's given by, uh, by LabCorp and it's called the lab, the LPIR test, the insulin resistance test. And it is the sine qua non of insulin resistance tests. However, since your doctor's probably going to resist that unless you have a really good functional medicine doctor who knows about these things, there are other ways to test for that and get this information, even if your doctor doesn't help you. So I'm going to give you the easy way to test for it. This yeah. is the at-home, low-tech, no-cost way. And there's a couple of others we talk about in the book. But this way, if you want a 98% certainty of whether you have insulin resistance, here's the at-home test. You ready? You stand in front of a wall. You walk slowly towards the wall. If your belly touches the wall before your nose does, 95% sure that you've got insulin resistance. So, so there's the at-home test. Now that's imagining that. Like if that's I, why they talk about the apple-shaped belly. Yes. Can somebody be skinny, skinny fat? Yes. Yes, and there are people like that. In fact, my friend, uh, he's been very public about this, Jeff O'Connell, who was the editor of Bodybuilding Magazine, is six foot five and skinny like a rail right. and found out about five or six years ago that he has diabetes. And he was one, he wrote a book about it, Sugar right. Blues. And, right. it, 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 and the point is, oh, sugar, uh, I forgot, <laughs> it's Sugar Something by Jeff O'Connell. And he talks about the discovery that metabolically, you know, he was 10, 20 years old. He didn't have an ounce of fat on him, but he was what they call skinny fat. Right. And metabolically, he was insulin resistant. Those are outliers. There's a smaller percentage of them, but it is possible to be insulin resistant and not be obese. Is there anything that people will feel if they're having, if, if they're insulin resistant? That's the problem. It's, it's the same as high blood pressure and even high cholesterol. You don't, the, 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 these are lab test things that you don't necessarily feel. With insulin resistance, the, the visible signs of it are generally weight gain, lower energy, more fat around the middle, particularly, and all the stuff that goes with that. But it, it is one of those things that you could have without having symptoms. So people at their physicals, they should be asking the doctors to test for that and not simply the age, the, the cholesterol. Test. Yes. And, and a question. an intermediary way to do this 
is you can actually get a fasting insulin test. That it does not test insulin resistance. It tests what your level is when you wake up, which should be very low. It should be under 10, 10.0. So if it's very high, that's a danger sign, but it's not definitely proof. Right. What you can do then is you get your fasting insulin. See if your doctor will do that. It's not an expensive test. You get the fasting insulin, then you go to your trusty computer. And just like you guys know how to use a BMI calculator, there's a million of them, they're free. You just put in your height and weight and it gives you through a very complicated formula. It gives you a number, BMI 22, 22.5, something like that. Well, there's something called a HOMA calculator, H-O-M-A. You take that fasting insulin level that you just got from your doctor, you plug it in, you plug in your fasting glucose, which is in every blood test that has ever been given to any human being on the world. It's the first number, fasting glucose. You plug those two numbers in and it'll give you your insulin resistance number right there with a scale and tell you, what, you know, what's moderate, what's high, what's low. So there are ways to do this, but I'm telling you, it starts with an with too much carbohydrate for the body. And you brought up a point earlier about some people might just think, well, I don't eat, you know, the 1100 calorie blueberry muffin that you yeah. just used as your example. I just have a slice of toast and jelly. And here's, you and I had this discussion before we went on the air. The glycemic index, glycemic load is a very general guess. It does not really tell you what your reaction to a given food has been. And all of this data that's come up since we wrote the book, there, there's an institute in Israel that just tests this kind of thing, individual testing for glycemic index. They find that the microbiome actually predicts what result you will get when you test uh, your, your particular reaction. The, the point of all this is that blood sugar reactions to even the same food very, very widely. I had a, a doctor friend once who, who was on to this about 10, 15 years ago. And he said, me and my wife, I, I started doing blood sugar tests just for fun to kind of figure out how this works. He said, I can eat Brussels sprouts and my blood sugar goes right. up. My wife eats a, a quart of Haagen-Dazs and it doesn't budge. Right. So there are huge variations. I also in find that depending on what my activity level has been. So if I've been exercising, I can handle things differently yeah. than if I haven't been. Yeah. If I'm under stress, I handle things differently than if I'm, if I'm relaxed at all. It's really very fluid. Right, but if people should know that it isn't an absolute and that we don't grade on a curve with health. Like it might, right. toast and jelly might be, not even budge the needle for some people and for other people, right. that's, it's, you're gone for the day. You're like in blood sugar health. So it, it is a very different reaction and you can't go by the food. You've got to go by your individual reaction to it. And that's what we're not looking at. And we're, so, and we're trying to get people to understand the lifestyle. So we're going to go to now, what do people do with it? But I have a quick question from, I think it was Karen that asked us, asked you, what if I ask for the particle test for my cholesterol, but my doctor doesn't know how to interpret the results? Is that, will a doctor necessarily, if he does the test, not know how to interpret? They have very, the labs send you, I've seen a million of these tests, right. including my own. They come back with very definite lab values to tell you what's out of range and not out of range. Um, I won't lie to you and tell you that most conventionally trained doctors know what to do. I mean, I had, uh, you, you want someone who's trained in functional medicine and nutrition, and they know how all these things work together. You had pointed out earlier about how conventional medicine is so um, compartmentalized. You got a thumb specialist and a shoulder specialist and a lung specialist, but nobody's looking at the whole body and how all these things communicate with each other. That's what functional medicine does. It looks at how everything functions together. Right. So, um, so if really somebody has a cardiologist, which again is used to looking at the heart tests, 
Will a cardiologist understand a, a classic, not a preventive cardiologist, but a, you know, kind of a classic cardiologist? Will they understand, or is this, you know, is is the insulin resistant part of this conversation something that really doesn't the cardiologist may or may not be part of that conversation? Which you can't not talk to them if you know that you've got a heart issue. There's two there's two points in your question, so let's unpack it. The first is about will they understand the particle test. The second is will they understand the importance of insulin resistance. Right. It is entirely possible that you had a, a good, well-trained functional medicine doctor who is perfectly able to interpret the particle test, but hasn't really made the connection to insulin resistance yet. And it's probably sadly more likely that a very conventionally trained doctor, let's just say at Kaiser, somewhere where you're in and out in seven minutes, is not going to know how to get, if, if they've heard of the particle test, they're not going to give it. It's not going to be covered by insurance. It's not going to be covered by their protocols. And if they did have it, they don't see it enough to really know what to dig into and what to do, what's important, what's not. You kind of need somebody who lives in that world. And unfortunately, it's not as common in everyday conventional medicine. You said, would a cardiologist know? I would say it depends on where they were trained and how involved they are in the current research. There are cardiologists around. I'll give you a perfect example. I have a dear friend. Um, in her late 60s, who is in wonderful shape, who has no risk factors for heart disease. Mm -hmm. She exercises at Equinox obsessively, or not obsessively, but just a healthy level of, of, right. of regularity and, and right. commitment. No, as I said, no body fat, a joyful life, very important. I hope we talk about that, how important that is in terms of heart disease. So, and no metrics, except she's got a 300 something cholesterol. So she and her very conventionally trained doctor in New York have had this fight for years. He has said, if you don't go on a statin, I'm gonna fire you as a patient. Yeah. I have told her, don't go on a statin, get the particle test, do something, you know. They made a deal. I wanna show you how embedded in the brains of these conventional medicine this crap is. Mm -hmm. I mean, they made a deal. The doctor said, okay, I understand you don't wanna take statins. Your crazy nutritionist friend says you don't need it. I'll make you a deal. I want you to get a calcium scan. Now, let me, for those who don't know, that is a picture of the artery that we're worried about with the plaque, the carotid artery. They go in, they look. It's no more like, let's predict what's the chance of happening at the Let's just go and look and see what, what's going on there. And calcium scans come back with a score of zero to a, th to a thousand. And you don't want them higher because the higher they are, the more plaque there is. And you're trying to reduce that. That's the serious. So she goes, this woman in her 60s, and there are different levels that are considered normal depending on how old you are. The older you are, the more they expect it to be. Mine was 43, for example. So she goes in and she gets the scan and it's zero. So understand Does what- Anyone have zero? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, there are people who have zero. She has zero, okay? She goes back to the doctor. He says, you know what? I don't know. I want you on a statin anyway. This is how deeply this brainwashing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Which then goes to advocacy and knowing your body and, and questioning, right? So, I mean, with her case, I just right. said, she kept saying, what should I do? What should I do? And I kept giving her the same answer. Right. Get another doctor. Get another doctor. You live in New York City, go to Frank Lipman. I mean, you know, you'll well, get a very different view. At a minimum, get a second opinion. 
at a minimum, but not a second opinion from somebody who like, works next door to that person and feels the same way they do. Get a different opinion from someone who looks at it a little bit differently, like someone who looks at it like I do. You're not going to go to me. I'm a nutritionist, but my partner in writing this book is a cardiologist. And I'll tell you right now, he doesn't feel the same way that, that my friend's doctor did about the statins. Yeah. Interesting. All right. You and I keep talking, talking, talking. We haven't gotten to the nut of this though. So now what do they do about insulin resistance? So, okay. so, so they have to, so that is the core to your heart disease. That is the precursor. That is the, the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Now, what do they do about it? Because as you said in the book, and again, the book is great and you've got all the details in there and all sorts of recommendations and details on the tests. All of it is in the book. Including genetic um, tests. They now have some yeah. terrific genetic tests for cardiovascular that we did not have 10 years ago yeah. and people aren't making full view of. I want to go back to the, you asked, what do people do? Right. And that is really the take home point. Correct. That's why they've sat around here for 50 minutes listening to us babble. And I, and, right. So I just want to preface this by saying what we talked about earlier when I said nutrition is very politicized, very polarized, much like politics. And, and one of the biggest questions people have is who do you believe? Who do you listen to? Because I'm going to tell you what I think you should eat. Right. But the question is, Okay, this guy's telling me what I should eat. This one's telling me to go on a FODMAP diet. This one's telling me to avoid lectins. Gundry says this. There's a million theories. Well, and again, some foods are healthy and they work they're for you. Right they're for healthy, you. they don't feel good on me. But they're not good, right. exactly. Right. So when I have audiences who are rightfully confused, mm -hmm. I always say, okay, let's take a big picture of you. Let's go back in time. The human genus, which is our the predecessors of Homo sapiens, but the genus Homo has been on the planet for 2.4 million years. Mm -hmm. Homo sapiens, according to the brilliant book Sapiens, about 110,000 years ago out of Africa, Homo sapiens have been on the planet. McDonald's became a franchise in 1957. What should we base, logically, what should we base our nutritional guidance on. For 2.4 million years, going through all the predecessors of the Homo sapiens, the Neanderthals, sapiens, the last 100,000 years of Homo sapiens, we have lived on foods we could hunt, fish, gather, or pluck. We did not even have agriculture until 10,000 years ago, which if you did our, our time on the planet as a 24-hour time clock was like half a minute ago. So if we're looking for guiding principles in this big ocean of conflicting opinions, where should we look for guidance? And my view has always been, let's look at the foods that worked for the first 2.4 million years. And when they say, well, yeah, but those people died earlier. Yeah, they died earlier because of cold, woolly mammoths, ice age stuff, neighboring tribes. They didn't die from the degenerative diseases that we are seeing now. And anthropologists have gone back and looked at their bones because they can find the signs of these diseases 20, 30 years earlier. And there were no signs of these diseases. So for all that time, we hunted food. We didn't hunt low-fat caribou. There's no low-fat buffalo out there. We hunted we fished, we gathered stuff from the ground, we plucked things off trees, and that's what we ate. And as my great nutrition teacher, the great late Robert Crahan always used to say, you're not sure if it's good for you? Here's the question you ask. You pretend you're naked on the African savanna with a hard, sharp stick. What could you catch and what could you eat? 
because 98% of the time it's gonna be damn good for you. And that's really the dietary advice I give. I don't care if you're, a, well, I do care if you're a vegan. Right. I think there's a lot of problems with that, but what, whatever particular dietary plan works for you and that, that you feel good on, whatever it is, because you can be a vegan and eat what we used to call at Equinox. You can be a Twinkie vegetarian. You, you, I won't eat anything with a face. So they eat Cocoa Krispies and they eat pasta all day and macaroni and cheese. You can be a vegan that way. That is not a healthy way to be a vegan. So it always comes down to real food. And when I say real food, I mean food. I always say, I mean food that your great, 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 great grandmother would have recognized as food if you showed it to her. When they did the Blue Zones research, they went into all these pockets around the globe where there are 100-year-old people who have been perfect health, and they, they have these pockets of areas where people really live very long, active lives. They showed them some supermarket food, right. like, like, you know, Lunchable, the things that come in packages. Right. They showed it to the, and they'd say, what is this? Right. We don't know what this is. What do you do with it? So you want food that would be recognized by four generations ago. You want food that if you left it outside, it would spoil and look horrible. And if you're not sure if it's real food, the answer is it's not. If you're going, well, kale chips, no, kale chips do not grow off the thing. You want <laughs> as unprocessed as possible in its natural state with the fat that it came with. And you will be making such a difference in terms of your metabolism. You can turn insulin resistance around in three days by eating a moderately high fat protein, moderately low carbohydrate diet. Carbohydrates are what drive insulin up. Carbohydrates are what keep it up. Fat has no effect on insulin. Remember I mentioned earlier when I said when you eat almost any food, blood sugar goes up, except fat. So what sense does it make to treat diabetes and obesity with a low amount of the one thing that doesn't drive your fat storage hormone up and a high amount of the thing that causes the very metabolic diseases we're trying to prevent. Now to you is, are all fats created equal or are there good fats and bad fats? Of course not. Okay. There is a huge difference in fats, but one of the messages of the book and one of them, it's not just in the book, I wrote an entire book about it called Smart Fat back in 2016. One of the messages that I want to get across to people is that good fat and bad fat do not divide neatly over animal versus vegetable. Mm -hmm. There are tons of quote unquote vegetable oils. They're actually seed oils, but they call them vegetable oils because they sound healthier, like right. corn oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, soybean oil, canola, which are highly inflammatory. They're loaded with omega-6s. And when these restaurants switched from the saturated fats that they were told were so bad, but actually stood up to heat very well, they switched to canola oil and corn oil. Here's what they do. They heat them up, then they cool them off, they leave them in there, they heat them up the next day, and they change the oil once a week. That oil is so filled with trans fats, with, with um, um, heterocyclic amines, with carcinogens, with all kinds of byproducts of the heating and, and reusing and this crappy oil that used to be in with. It's a, it's a cancer factory, but it's a vegetable oil. Right. If it's stuck with lard from healthy animals that were, were raised on pasture, it wouldn't be as bad as, as what they're doing with the vegetables. So what we got to start to think of is bad fats are toxic fats. They're fats that promote inflammation. They do not divide about animal and mineral. There's plenty of good saturated fats, coconut oil, Malaysian palm oil, butter has, and by the way, butter is half monounsaturated fat. 
which is the same thing that's found in olive oil. So these notions that we have that saturated fat is always bad and animal products are always good is just doesn't hold up. It's just not so. And I know people get very plugged in about animal products because there's all the social and other issues mm -hmm. around it, but I am only talking now about nutrition. And there's nothing wrong with animal products that come from healthy and humanely raised animals. You know, it, it really is so confusing, but I love the way that you frame it in terms of if you could pick it, if you could, if you could shoot it, if you could, you know, right. bring it home for dinner, then that, because that, that makes it a lot easier. But so, okay, but wait a second, that's also really hard. So what do you, and then we're going to talk about lifestyle a little bit and supplements. And we're running very long, and I apologize to anybody, but this is a good conversation. So hopefully you'll hang around or you'll watch the rest of it later. Um, what do you eat for a snack? What do you do for fun? Do you allow fun? Ice cream and medicine? My whole life is fun. <laughs> no, but like people get intimidated by this, right? Because they go, okay, like they're with us on it. And they'll go, okay, I got it. That Ho-Ho's is not a breakfast. So I understand that and donuts and whatever. And you can't live on that stuff. But suddenly, again, like we don't want people to say you can never have a brownie again in your life, right? So how do you give them some semblance of normalcy? Because every so often you want a, uh, you know, birthday cake happens. You know what? I, I've never been a, a purist about this. There are, I have colleagues who are like, they, there's zero tolerance, doesn't matter, birthdays, whatever. Yeah. And I get it. I get some, some of us, particularly with addictive personalities, have to be very, very strict about their quote unquote treats. Mm -hmm. Some people make a massive re-education effect, uh, effort with their kids to reprogram them so that they don't, they don't think of junk as treats. They think of them as junk that you're allowed to have once in a while. It's a right. kind of a different way to think of it. Right. Because if you keep programming, these are treats. I want a treat in my heart. My day was bad. I deserve. Right. Then it's just, it's a very, I don't mean to be hard ass about it, but it really does take you down a path where, you know, we've got to do, we have to do a big reset here on what, what treats are. Now, I'm totally with you. If I go to someone's house who's a great baker and they bring out chocolate chip cookies, it's going to be very hard for me not to have one or two. And I might even overeat them. But it's really what we do, what, what, what that costs us which for some people might not be that high. So you can have it once in a while. I know some people that if they have it, it's like a, an ex-smoker smoking a few cigarettes. It doesn't stop there. Then they're on a binge for the next week and, they can't, and they're back to being addicted. So right. you, Shakespeare was right, know thyself. I, for example, I have not had an alcoholic beverage since 1982. You said, well, can you have one as a treat? No, I mean, it's just that simple. And it doesn't, you know, after the first initial thing, it's like, yeah, no, I can't eat that. Like people who have peanut allergies and wind up in the hospital with anaphylactic shock. Can you have just a few? It's New Year's Eve. No, you can't. So, you know, I'm not saying nobody should ever have sugar. I'm saying we should take sugar as seriously as an addictive drug as we take the other addictive drugs. Um, and, and it has been shown in studies to be as addictive as cocaine. So we really, this is not some, I know we all associate it with grandma and apple pie and Thanksgiving, but we need to really start thinking about the real, when we learn to love real foods, the tastes of spices and real foods prepared lovingly, it's, it can, after a while, you can, you know, we have a program I've been doing for years called metabolic factor that it's a weight loss and metabolism program. We have them not eat this, this stuff for 20, for, for 10 days. And then they can have a, a, they can go off it and they have another number of days. And, and what happens is after a couple of cycles, the people, okay, here's your day. You can eat anything you want. They eat that stuff and they go, I feel awful. 
Mm-hmm. I feel awful. I ate all the, I was allowed right. to eat all that stuff and they just, they feel it the next day. And that's a, that's a wake up call to people. It's like when I was a smoker, you know, I smoked cigarettes all the time. I didn't know that, but the first cigarette you ever have, everybody who's listening to this knows that you choke, you get dizzy. That's what your body really wants to do when you put hot tobacco and nicotine right. down your lungs. It's, right. And you stop reacting that way because you get acclimated to it. It's the right. same thing with sugar. It's yeah. like, it, when these people stop eating that stuff for 10 days and then they eat it, they see what sugar really does to their body and they crave it less. I've said this forever. I, I was a big sugar person. I said, I grew up in the 1960s when, you know, Pop-Tarts was like, oh, you know, that breakfast. was food, right? So that, that was totally, it's breakfast, lunch, and snack. I can't even tell you how much sugar I lived on. And I never realized until I stopped eating that stuff, how bad I felt on it. And the exact same thing happened. So I stopped eating it. And now, and yes, I will have ice cream every so often. I'll have this much. I won't have this much. I will not have a whole hot fudge sundae. I'll have a spoon of it. And But even that, I can feel it. You know, you don't realize what it's doing to you until you've cleansed your body of it. And then you go, wow, that's impacting. Yeah. All right, let's talk about lifestyle in the, the, for a couple of minutes. Um, so you talked about stress and you talked about in the book about the Mediterranean, not only Mediterranean diet a little bit, um, which is again, like, but Mediterranean lifestyle, right. Which I think is a really interesting way of framing healthy lifestyle that helps with insulin resistance and helps with your stress and all of your body, your blood sugar processing. And that's the thing people forget about when they talk about the Mediterranean diet, they think it's all olive oil, but let's, let's look at a few differences in the style, big meal during the day, Mm -hmm. naps, men, are known to gather in the squares and share a lot of emotional things, their marriages, their families, their things, and they talk to one another and they have much deeper friendships. Right. They get a lot of sun. Right. They, eat their, their, they don't eat their big meal at night all mm-hmm. the time. There's a lot of working outdoors. You know, it, it's not, the Mediterranean has 22 countries that border it. So there isn't one Mediterranean diet. Right. Which, oh, we talk about that in the book too. I, I actually went, online and looked at menus in restaurants from all of those countries. Mm-hmm. They are so different, you can't believe it. And meat is <laughs> on all of them, by the way. So it's not a meatless diet. Um, where we got this idea that they don't eat meat in the Mediterranean right. diet is, is crazy. Right. But it is that we need to start respecting the contribution of things like our sleep, mm-hmm. our digestion, our relationships to others, all of these things have profound effects on our stress hormones and our stress hormones have profound effects on our metabolism. Yeah. And I mentioned the stress hormone earlier when I was giving you that example, we wake up 30 years later, stress hormone. Well, the main stress hormone is cortisol and elevated cortisol all the time through a process which is both boring and long, elevated cortisol actually can promote insulin resistance. So the stress that we have has a very definite metabolic effect on all of this stuff. Um, Relationships, how in love with your partner you are, how in love with your church, your temple, your synagogue, your atheist organization, I don't care. It's the connection to those things, not the content of them Mm -hmm. that makes a difference. And people who are connected like that, when they did the blue zone research and they find all these 94 year olds who are, you know, chasing up the mountain, Sardinia with their goats and I mean, living that kind of life, they can't find any that are isolated. They'd love to find the equivalent of a, of a um, Ted, what's his name? Ted, you know, that lives up in the, one of those mountain guys that they don't exist. So connection, human connection to other people is one of the strongest 
promoters of heart health. And I'll, I'll, if we have a minute, I'll tell you one story that's in the book that's really wonderful. It's called the Rosetto Phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You've heard of it? Um, I didn't read that part of the book. I read a lot of the book. I didn't get I didn't get that piece the, of it. The we'll share it. And then we'll send people to the book to find out about supplements and all that because we're running so The, the Rosetta phenomena is, is known throughout mm-hmm. science. It's not something that we uncovered in the book, but we pointed it out because it has relevance. So in the 20s, there's this town, I think it's in Pennsylvania called Rosetto, where it, it started with two doctors at a meeting at a bar going, so where do you practice? And down the street of Rosetto, oh, you practice in this county over here. And they're talking about heart disease. And they're going, no, I don't see any heart disease patients in Rosetto. What, what's going on? And, and it literally started as a conversation. And they started looking and they realized the heart disease rates in Rosetta are just off the charts low. Now, Rosetta was one of the most hard scrapple towns. And it was like a poor immigrant town. People worked in the mines. They ate the worst diet you could imagine at the, what, what they thought was the worst diet. Most of them smoked. I mean, these were not every measure you could imagine. They looked like they should be dying like flies. And they had a very low rate of heart disease, an uncharacteristically low given I'm not saying there was none, but it was right. very, very low given the predictors. Right. So, uh, they descended on this town to do right. research. And if you if you Google the Rosetto phenomenon, you'll find pages of it. This is what they found. The community was mostly immigrants who had come from the same area of Europe. They were incredibly tightly knit. They had regular Sunday dinners as a family. They did uh, they helped each other with charity stuff. They would, if, if somebody, somebody's house came apart, they all went and rebuilt it. This was one of the most tightly knit, connected communities that had ever been studied. And the researchers finally could not find any reason that they were also, except to say this level of connection and whatever else it does physiologically is sufficient to overcome some of these ridiculously high risk factors that these people have, like breathing mine uh, uh, dust and smoking cigarettes. Now, I'm not saying that if you have wonderful relationships, it doesn't matter what you eat and what you do and what you smoke. Of course it does. But I, I, I bring this up to illustrate the power of these non-diet and exercise related factors like our relationships, like our love life, like our digestion, like our relationship with our pets, like the time we spend in the sun and walking around greenery, which is a whole field of therapy called ecotherapy. It turns out that the more greenery you're exposed to, the less your blood pressure is and the less your cortisol is. So these things, you cannot just look at heart disease prevention in terms of lowering the number on a lab test. You have to look at it as, a, as an entire way to approach life. And yes, diet's a big part of it and exercise is a big part of it, but it's not the only part of it. And there's a lot that we have under uh, in our control that we can really kind of stack the odds against getting really bad stuff happening. I love it. So interestingly, bringing it back around to a couple other things that are tangential to this, mm-hmm. COVID, stress, divisiveness in the country. Thank you. Right. And yeah. a lot of these, there's they talk about the other deaths. We have as many people who have theoretically died or supposedly died of other causes than COVID. And approximately about the same amount is what I read. 
of other things through this so that there's, because for whatever reason, increased heart disease, suicide, depression, all sorts of things that are going on. And this divisiveness and the negative nature that's going on is destroying us from the inside out. It is unhealthy that, right? And that, you know, so whatever we got to do to be able to deal with our differences and love our differences and respect it and go back to that is going to be far healthier while we're all worrying about hiding in our hidey holes, afraid of COVID. The, I, the health, of, health of all of us, right, is so far beyond just COVID. And we need to think about all of that for heart disease, depression, Alzheimer's, all of this. I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, to ground it back, again, this, if our immune system is constantly, I, I, here's how I look at it. An immune system is like our, my local fire department. Mm-hmm. Now, I live in Southern California, about a mile away from some of the wildfires in Topanga Canyon. So you want your fire department to be at the ready for an emergency. Mm-hmm. You want all the engines polished up, filled with gas. You want the fire people to be well-nourished and well-slept and in their best game, ready to take on an emergency. Now, when your immune system, to use the analogy of the fire department, is constantly putting out little stupid fires that are user controlled areas that are literally like unforced areas, little inflammatory, like for the fire department, it's like kids putting out little stupid things on fireworks on 4th of July. The firemen, the fire people and the engines are all scattered around trying to put out these bitterly little stupid inflammatory fires. And now the Topanga wildfire comes and they're not up to the task. That's what the relationship to COVID is. All of these little metabolic, they're not little, but these metabolic conditions underneath, they're all inflammatory. So you've got all the resources of the immune system trying to deal with inflammation here and stress here and all of these things take up resources. Now you get COVID. Where are your resources? They're like my fire department that's putting out the teenagers prank fires when I've got a Topanga wildfire raging a mile from my house. That's the connection to COVID. Metabolic issues that are caused by the wrong diet, too much stress, all the things we've talked about for an hour, deplete the resources that we need to fight whatever virus may come along. Yeah. And you even said before, the sugar out of control, the the cofactors for people getting badly sick or dying from this, it isn't just inherently if you have diabetes, it's if your sugar is out of control is when it's getting them. So to get all of this, the insulin resistance, that it's all, we are all connected. We are all connected. We are kumbaya. That should be our theme, Sarah, every time we do something together. We we are are connected, my friend. All right, Johnny Bowden, you're awesome. Website, johnnybowden.com. You can see the book up there, The Great Cholesterol Myth. Pardon? Instagram, Twitter, it's all at Johnny Bowden. Just don't put an H in Johnny. Yes, J-O-N-N-Y. All right, and I'm sure that it's in the chat rooms um, along along on the uh, Facebook on the Facebook, right? As opposed to the Googler. As the Googles, yeah. Right, the Google. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Share this, read this, my friend. We'll see you soon. Thank you, right. much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm talking to leading nutritionist and author Johnny Bowden about the medical myth that cholesterol is the it factor when it comes to risk for heart disease. It's not. Cholesterol is not that simple and heart disease is far more connected to blood sugar and insulin resistance than it is to cholesterol. In fact, did you know that more than half the people admitted to hospitals for cardiovascular disease had quote unquote normal cholesterol? While helping readers overcome myths and biases with information readers can trust, 
from the world's top insiders is core to how our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, helps people do better and feel better. John is one of thousands of top experts who've appeared in Bottom Line Personal, not just in healthcare, but in all aspects of life, including financial planning, great gift ideas, how to save money on travel, insurance snafus, smart tax strategies, improving your relationships, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Now, more than ever, you need Bottom Line Personal. You can subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of our experts' greatest tips of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.